with gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Jared Goldfarb. Jared is an informal educator and licensed tour guide who specializes in exploring faith narratives within their historical and geographic context. Jared, hi. Hi. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me. Something that uh, you do now is uh, you, you study faith narrative text within, within the context of leading people around Jerusalem. Correct, and further abroad than Jerusalem, but certainly a focus in Jerusalem. And how did you? How did your your path bring you here? My path from the beginning. Yes, quick strokes like everything from from your because you grew up in New Hampshire, didn't you? Correct. Yes. So growing up uh, in a Jewish family in the not so urban scene of New Hampshire, uh, there was uh, not an abundance of Jewish stimuli, so it was a fairly superficial uh, Jewish identity, but one that definitely um, implanted a spark uh, that I later explored in depth as a young adult uh, living in the Boston area. Um, and the more I learned, the more I was became aware uh, of the role that Israel might play in, uh, in my Jewish identity, either historical, cultural, or religious. Um, and so I came here in 1996 to explore uh, that, that potential, uh, not having any clue what I would get myself into. Uh, and as happened in, in Boston, the more I explored in Jerusalem, the more I fell in love with the potential and uh, continued exploring through more formal uh, Jewish learning um, in yeshiva, uh, as well as learning about the general history of the Middle East, of the various cultures and civilizations that have passed through here. Um, and as I became more and more comfortable in my own Jewish skin, finding Jewish identity, finding Jewish community here in Jerusalem, um, I was particularly intrigued about other people going through their own processes of discovering their faith identity, especially as it relates to the geographic reality of this land of Jerusalem as a sacred city. Um, and so I continued kind of bridging from my Jewish identity into other uh, cultures in a, in a learning way, and then eventually develop that into the teaching that I do. Were there any particular moments for you when um, you sort of went, oh, now I, I sort of, I, I, I'm sort of fascinated by the Christian or Muslim narrative about this place, and I feel like it really fleshes out my understanding to know them? Uh, for sure. Uh, I remember quite vividly the first time I was invited to teach in a non-Jewish environment here uh, in Jerusalem uh, after already having a few years under my belt um, of both study and teaching in a very Jewish context, teaching Jewish texts to Jewish people. Um, it just so happened through a series of circumstances I was invited to teach at a Catholic convent, uh, coincidentally located in the Muslim quarter of the old city. Um, and while I was invited specifically to teach Jewish material, uh, 
uh, it was very clear to me that the class was very different by nature of being Catholic clergy, um, and the fact that the staff at the convent were predominantly uh, Muslim Palestinians who lived in the quarter and just outside of the old city walls. And so while it was meant to be a perhaps a temporary uh, teaching gig, uh, it ended up becoming um, a, a full, not a full-time teaching uh, job, but uh, rather a very long and developed relationship between me and the institution. And, uh, and as I was there, I became more and more intrigued uh, with the lives of those that were becoming my colleagues and my friends and the people that I was interacting with on a daily basis. Um, now that I was sort of becoming quite used to leaving the Jewish bubble of the neighborhood in which I live. You've got a, a, a sheet that you like to show your tour groups called Jerusalem Narratives. Could you tell us briefly what that is? Sure. One of the experiences that I've really come to cherish most, uh, teaching and guiding in Jerusalem, um, is often challenging students, tourists, guests, friends to kind of consider the city beyond the immediate, somewhat selfish role that it plays in our, in our own individual identities. Um, and so while there is a certain joy to sharing the power of Jerusalem with a, a family or a class of students for the first time and seeing the excitement of recognizing the historic and geographic value to their own identities, um, I very quickly like to then confuse them or complicate things um, by sharing many of the other parallel narratives that are similarly rooted in the same geography and are often intertwined within the textual traditions, right? Meaning the shared prophecies, um, shared events, um, and shared geographic terms. Uh, and so the source sheet that uh, we're looking at right now is kind of an introductory way to at least examine some of the core texts that each of the three major monotheistic faiths uh, use in linking our traditions to Jerusalem, but then tracing them just gently beyond those core texts into a more um, analytic or perhaps a, a commentary fashion of then explaining some of those stories in their specific narrative. So we are able to appreciate both the shared roots that we have as well as the development of these identities that clearly separate us in very important and unique ways that we should not be shy about. So something I'd like to do uh, today, which is a bit different from other interviews we've done here, is uh, I'd like to go through this source sheet with you and explore a few of these, of these sources that you will often use with your groups and try and tease out what it is that we can learn about the very narratives. So uh, with your permission, I'd like to read a bit from the first excerpt on this sheet. This is from the Jerusalem narrative sheet. This is the first, the first excerpt, Genesis 22, verses 1 to 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and broke the wood for the burnt offering, 
rose up and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far away. Abraham called the name of that place Adonai Yireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The angel of God called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, said God, for because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand upon the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gate of its enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So you will often open uh, your, your exploration of the text with a, in a group capacity with this one, with this excerpt from Genesis. Most certainly, if I happen to be with a Jewish community, indeed. <laughs> Given that this is uh, one of the most important roots of our faith identity in Jerusalem, um, or certainly in this land. Uh, important to note, of course, that uh, in this particular text, I did leave out the most obvious verses, which are the moment of the binding of Isaac, largely just to simplify the text, um, but also to showcase the introduction to the moment that certainly many Jews, not all, but many Jews in the world grow up learning about the significance of Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, um, but the introduction to the geography, as well as the resolution uh, of what happens after that moment, are often lesser known. Um, and so for me, those are perhaps maybe even the more important pieces, because it's not just this kind of theological connection to Abraham as our ancestor and his willingness to participate in this test by binding his son Isaac, but rather... What is the world that Abraham is coming out of? And then how does Abraham perhaps leave his mark on the story uh, by the naming of the, of the hill? What is the world that he's coming out of? Well, uh, of course, Abraham is, uh, is a newcomer to this land. He is not a native to this land. Uh, and so on the journey that we explore in the earlier preceding chapters in Genesis, uh, we certainly see Abraham coming to terms with new geography, uh, and many of the terms that are shared sort of with him via the text, via the text of Genesis. Um, we see the interactions between him and some of the locals. Um, and then, of course, we have this process of wandering, of almost exploring the land, sometimes more intentionally, sometimes because, as in this case, he is called by God to come to this place, right? So we see this important movement from the moment immediately preceding this text, which is the struggle over the water source in what becomes known as Be'er Sheva. Uh, and then we read that he sort of journeys three days when he lifts up his eyes and sees this place in a mysterious land called Moriah. And the understanding is in this mysterious land of Moriah is uh, where we, we now know the modern city of Jerusalem? Sure based on the Jewish interpretive tradition, um, and again, I would I often emphasize in the study of this pretext, not so much what is just written, but what is not written. What's not written? The word Jerusalem, for starters. So the fact that we certainly have one of our strongest roots in Judaism connecting us to Jerusalem through this particular moment 
Um, it is, of course, fascinating that the word Jerusalem does not appear in this text, nor does it appear in the five books of Moses in the Torah. Uh, and so we are forced to then relate, if we choose to link our tradition to a particular geography, we must relate to this term Moriah, or Moriah, that is provided. And perhaps even more powerful than that, the term Mount Moriah is quite well known in the Jewish community. And yet, in this text, we are only introduced to a land of Moriah. Mm. And so, even just opening up the eyes of people who are deeply familiar with the narrative version of this story, but perhaps not as familiar with the specific text uh, of the story, already opens a few doors to questioning where exactly are we, right? If we are so passionate about the, the consequences of declaring a historic relationship with this land, certainly as we have manifested it in the modern state of Israel, then should we not be intimately familiar with some of these first moments of, shall we say, Jewish expression in the land? So if that happens in a land called Moriah, maybe we should be asking ourselves, where is exactly the land of Moriah? Why is it that we don't see many references at all to a land called Moriah anywhere else in our textual tradition? Um, and again, the emphasis after the ellipsis, the, 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 the chunk that I left out of the text, we then see Abraham giving a name to this hill on which he fulfills uh, uh, God's expectations. And yet that too, Adonai Yireh, God will show or God will be seen, or sometimes in English it's translated as God will provide. Why do we not bump into that name again and again and again? as the sacred, earthly context for our covenant with God. And so by opening up some of those questions, we immediately uh, force ourselves to think a little bit deeper about our own connection to the text and our own faith identities and our relationship with Abraham. But as we will see, developing the text further, we then perhaps open up windows, maybe even doors, to the existence of other narratives that might be taking place simultaneously, or even in generations afterwards. Let's keep moving within this uh, narrative for now. Uh, you, you then The second text you use is uh, from Genesis 14. Will you uh, read that one out, please? Sure. Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. Malkitzedek, king of Shalem, brought forth bread and wine. He was the priest of the supreme God. He blessed him and said... Blessed be Avram of the Supreme God, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Supreme God, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He then gave him a tenth of everything. Why, why do these verses make it into your very, uh, I imagine, very space-constrained <laughs> sheet? Now, these texts clearly do not stand alone. Uh, this is, quite surprisingly, uh, a passage that is far less familiar to most Jews I have had the opportunity to work with, and interestingly enough, quite very familiar to the larger Christian community around the world. But that's a separate story. The issue here is simply bring the text, first and foremost, to introduce another of the kind of Abraham as newcomer narrative, as he meets new people and he struggles in this land. Again, I out of space constraint, I had to leave out the previous verses which explain the battle that Abraham enters into against some of the local Canaanites uh, in order to rescue his nephew Lot uh, from capture. And in doing so, 
coming back to uh, his home, perhaps, uh, enters into the realm of Shalem, once again, another geographic term that some folks are familiar with, but as it is not really a well-known ge geographic location in the land of Israel today, there is a certain mystery about that and whether or not it has any relevance to us and our relationship with Abraham and the land. And as we will see very quickly, the main reason why I bring this text is because it then fulfills or completes a package that we can then interpret as we march through time on the Jewish spectrum and move into Midrash, or commentary, or exploratory texts in reflecting back on these original sources. And that's the third, the third text here, that's a Midrash or a Correct. commentary. So, whereas the, the first two, two texts we just read are actual excerpts from the Bible, this is from Genesis Rabbah. Mm -hmm. And what is Genesis Rabbah? Um, essentially one in the vast volume of midrashim, or, um, or stories, or ex explanatory texts uh, about the original sources, uh, where we find sometimes uh, a little bit more information, perhaps even a little bit more detail, uh, about some of the earlier stories that are very compelling, but perhaps leave us with more questions than we might like. And so to answer those questions, we have to simply follow the... the the track of time, um, and allow for different Jewish communities in different historical realities to develop those texts and, and maybe share them in a different way. And, and this is a rabbinic text? And this would be certainly considered a, a rabbinic text. So, Genesis Rabbah, uh, will you read this one, please? For sure. Uh, just to introduce it with one sentence, this is, of course, uh, the resolution, you could say, of introducing the earlier two texts. Uh, and it's a very, very brief passage. Genesis Rabbah, uh, chapter 56, passage 10. Abraham called the name of that place Adonai Yireh. But Shem called it Shalem, Malkitzedek, king of Shalem. The Holy Blessed One said, If I call it Yireh, as did Abraham, then Shem, a righteous man, will resent it. While if I call it Shalem, as did Shem, Abraham, a righteous man, will resent it. Hence, I will call it Yerushalem, including both names, Yireh and Shalem. Wow. So Jerusalem itself was linguistically created uncompromised. One could certainly make that argument, uh, largely due to the fact that we don't find the name Jerusalem in the Torah, where we perhaps would most expect to find it, or perhaps even desire to find it, given those very powerful connections that we are raised on, literally, by understanding that Abraham, our ancestor, was journeying in the land in and around Jerusalem. So this text I, I love exploring in group formats, because it's often that moment where you can literally see mind-blown <laughs> largely because most people are not very familiar with this particular Midrash, but also because it then, at the same time, resolves a complication from our early textual tradition, mm -hmm. i.e. the book of Genesis, that maybe doesn't give us enough information to be certain that Abraham is actually standing in Jerusalem on the hill that we today would refer to as Mount Moriah, while at the other time, perhaps or at the same time, perhaps 
complicating the situation enough by informing us that the name Jerusalem, as it is ascribed to that sacred moment, is perhaps only a later understanding. And if that's the case, would that perhaps then open up new questions as to what else do I take for granted, or what assumptions have I made about my own faith identity and my, my physical space in this land that I should also be exploring further? Wow. Okay, so start them off with a, with a good uh, undermining of, of <laughs> their preconceptions <laughs> and presupposition. The, the next text on the sheet is uh, the first Christian text that you use. It's a piece from John, which with your permission I'll, I'll read from. Please do. This is from John 19, verses 38 to 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who at first had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and that tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Interesting. I, uh, I remember when I, I, I've, done, I've been through this, uh, these pages with you before uh, as part of an actual tour, and I remember being um, enthralled then by the, the narrative you managed to weave through it. But looking at it again now, I'm, I'm amazed because what's going on here is, is Jesus is dying and he's being buried. And there's clearly more, more going on that I'm missing. What am I missing here? Well, for sure, if we were in a, uh, a more intense educational moment... Uh, there would need to be a, a serious introduction to this particular text, especially if working with a crowd that is not intimately familiar with the New Testament. Um, and just as if I were to open with a text for, from Genesis for a, for a Jewish crowd, um, then I would need that much more, perhaps, introduction to a, a, a passage from John, uh, given that many Jews, unfortunately, are not that familiar with uh, the New Testament. So really, this is... Um, somewhat of a, of, a, of a late text in the development of the life, the teachings, uh, as Christians would call it, the ministry of Jesus, uh, the role that Jesus comes to play, his relationship with Jerusalem as a Jew living 2,000 years ago. And of course, there would need to be some geographic and historical information, like the fact that Jesus came to Jerusalem on the, uh, on the pilgrimage, as in Ole Regen. Uh, coming up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice for Pesach, for Passover. This is, this is the famous moment in the New Testament where uh, Jesus and his disciples are in the very north of the country, and then he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and, and die now, and then does that walk down? Uh, as we assume that he had probably done many times before in his life, or at least was expected to do, given the commandments uh, that we have already established as part of the Jewish uh, covenant. Because it was almost uh, Passover and all the Jews were expected to assemble for Passover. Correct. 
Um, so there needs to be that link, of course, to understand that Jesus, as a Jewish man, is essentially fulfilling the extension of the earlier text we read from Genesis, having established sacred space on a hill in Jerusalem, once again, still with plenty of questions surrounding the name Jerusalem, the location of Moriah, but once we've established that as a precedent, and then later move through history until we get to the Israelite kingdom, the uh, conquering of the city of Jerusalem by David, and then the establishment or building of the sacred temple by King Solomon, we then have a physical reality that Jesus can partake in as a committed Jew. So showing up to Jerusalem is then going to have a tremendous impact on what then develops as Christianity. Because if the, the one of the theological roots of Christianity is the sacrifice of Jesus, then the moment of crucifixion, and then this passage from John where we see the at least temporary burial, we now have physical space in that same sacred zone, if you will, of Jerusalem, where Christians can come, perhaps slightly less worried about the site or role of the temple, as Jesus may have been, but now showering their kind of historical connections on these locations of uh, Golgotha, the site of crucifixion, and the tomb of Christ, where Jesus' body lay until the resurrection. So the so at this point, the there's a sort of paralleling in the way that Abraham hallows the land with the sacrifice, or near sacrifice of his son Isaac. Uh, Jesus uh, hallows the land through his crucifixion and resurrection for Christians. And so th from this point on, we sort of have a, um, a sort of dual hallowing of the land, if you will. For sure. For sure. That is certainly one of the many ways we could read this text. I'll be honest, I don't often emphasize the sacrificial moment as the passage, only because many, many students and groups from around the world, let's be honest, are sometimes less comfortable with that idea of sacrifice, or at least it's, it's less of a language that we're familiar with, um, as opposed to simply just talking about a, a sacred ground in a particular land or in a particular city. But it is certainly a very valid uh, parallel piece. For me, the most important parallel is how we see movement towards Jerusalem, almost being called to one's maker, right? In the sense that Abraham is called to journey this three days out of Beersheba into the land of Moriah, and Jesus, perhaps through his own covenantal relationship, is called to Jerusalem to offer uh, a gift to God. And so coming to that space in order to recognize it creates a physical foundation, one that is both shared with, at this point, at least in the textual uh, sheet, shared by Judaism and Christianity, but which are clearly then only the foundations of what will become an extremely divided uh, narrative as we move forward in time. Cool. We're going to um, proceed a bit. The, the next few texts are considerably longer, so I was hoping you could pick out a couple of lines from each of them which uh, drove home some of what you're trying to do with each of those texts. Sure. I, brought, I then bring two uh, later historical texts, or at least they're often read as historical texts, um, explaining the, the physical element of Christianity in this land, in what Christians would often call the Holy Land. Um, 
by coming back to consecrate the space that is mentioned in John, the passage that we just read, this tomb that is offered as a temporary burial site. And of course, important to note that just as in the Jewish tradition, we have the story of Abraham and then only the building of the temple many, many, many generations later, here too, we do see some historical distance between the life of Jesus and the consecration of the tomb uh, in the form of perhaps the first church that is built over that site. Uh, the two texts that I have brought, the first one from Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, who lived in the late 3rd, early 4th century uh, and wrote a text entitled The Life of Constantine. The second text by Socrates Scholasticus, living in the late 4th century, um, writing Historia Ecclesiastica. Both address the potent moment of discovery of the site of the crucifixion and the tomb of Jesus, um, and relate to it in slightly different ways, such that, on one hand, there's a very rooted historical moment of placing the narrative in Jerusalem, so that perhaps later followers can come and connect to that space, but on the other hand, also linking up to the theological importance of the, the story through perhaps a, a miracle that ensures that we know we have found the right location. Right. And so I'll read a passage uh, from the second text from Socrates Scholasticus, uh, perhaps writing in the uh, early 5th century. Um, in this case, as opposed to Eusebius, who uh, attributes the discovery to Constantine himself, uh, the ruler of the Roman Empire who converts to Christianity. Uh, this text in Socrates Scholasticus attributes that discovery to Helena, the mother of the emperor. Um, it is a quite long text, uh, so just to pick out a couple of verses. Helena, the emperor's mother, being divinely directed by dreams, went to Jerusalem, finding that which was once Jerusalem desolate as a preserve for autumnal fruits, according to the prophet, she sought carefully the sepulchre of Christ, from which he arose after his burial, and after much difficulty, by God's help, she discovered it. What the cause of the difficulty was, I will explain in a few words. Those who embraced the Christian faith after the period of his passion greatly venerated this tomb, but those who hated Christianity, having covered the spot with a mound of earth, erected on it a temple to Venus, and set up her image there, not caring for the memory of the place. This succeeded for a long time, and it became known to the emperor's mother. Accordingly, she caused the statue to be thrown down, the earth to be removed, and the ground entirely cleared, and found three crosses in the sepulcher. One of these was that blessed cross on which Christ had hung. The other two were those on which the two thieves that were crucified with him had died. Since, however, it was doubtful which was the cross they were in search of, the emperor's mother was not a little distressed. But from this trouble, the bishop of Jerusalem, Macarius, shortly relieved her, and he solved the doubt by faith, for he sought a sign from God and obtained it. The sign was this. A certain woman of the neighborhood, who had long been afflicted with disease, was just at the point of death. The bishop arranged so that each of the crosses would be brought to the dying woman, 
believing that she would be healed on touching the precious cross. Nor was he disappointed, for the two crosses having been applied, which were not the Lord's, the woman continued in a dying state, but when the third, which was the true cross, touched her, she was immediately healed and recovered her former strength. In this manner, then was the genuine cross discovered. So here we have, again, a bit of a crossover between the historical approach of Helena, a human being we're all familiar with through historical texts, coming to Jerusalem, perhaps as a pilgrim, um, and deeply desiring to discover the tomb of Jesus. And according to this particular approach, it had been known to previous generations, but simply covered over by a different faith narrative, one of the polytheistic Roman Empire. And so after clearing the tomb, the discovery of the cross then assures her that she has in fact discovered the right place, but we have a little bit of a, of a faith edge to this particular text, perhaps straying a little bit from historical fact, but very, very importantly, uh, linking the healing of a dying woman to the discovery of the true cross, so that in fact you are able to link your faith connection to Jerusalem with the maybe more simple historical evidence of Jesus' life in this land. And why, why does this text, or these two texts, why do they make it onto the sheet? Once again, as we see with the Midrash that we looked at from Genesis Rabbah, uh, there is a deep desire to make sure we understand our connection to Jerusalem. And so the, the sheer need to explain the story of Abraham and Isaac taking place in Jerusalem through this creative use of the different terms and, and sharing us with the true name of Jerusalem, um, we have here this physical searching for the tomb in Jerusalem. And the other parallel, of course, being that, just as in Genesis Rabbah, we understand that it is perhaps a little fanciful that we're able to connect the name Jerusalem to the text in Genesis 22, where we only read of a land of Moriah. Uh, so here, the tomb dug up by Helena could have very well have been connected to any other historical reality, but once again, perhaps a little bit more of a faith-based link, and so we see that parallel with the Jewish story explored beforehand. The final set of texts you have on this page is a set of Muslim texts, and you start with a couple of pieces from the Quran. I want to read the second of those. It's from Surah 17, Ayah 1. Glory to Allah, who took his servant for a journey by night from the sacred precinct to the farthest precinct. The sacred precinct, Al-Masjid Al-Harami, to the farthest precinct, Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, whose precincts we did bless, in order that we might show him some of our signs. For he is the one who hears and sees all things. So this passage is from the Quran itself. And uh, this is a reference to the night ride of the Nabi Muhammad wasallam. The night journey, as it's often referred to, where the immediate geography of the birth of Islam in the Arabian Peninsula is now apparently 
being challenged from within, in that we do not see the immediate interaction or the relationship with Muhammad and God, or Allah, develop in that comfort zone, but rather the angels wish to bring him, perhaps, to that farthest precinct in order to have the interaction. Of course, we have to keep in mind that just as we explored in Genesis, we are probably left with more questions than with answers as to exactly why the angels feel this need and where perhaps they are exactly taking him. Just as we are not fully clear on the land of Moriah, as we read in Genesis 22, the farthest precinct is similarly vague uh, in not understanding directly where Muhammad ends up. And then, of course, we have to rely on later traditions to fill in some of that information. You wrap up this sheet with, uh, with a quote from one of those latest tradition, later traditions. It's from a book of Hadith called Sahih Muslim. Uh, I was wondering if you could read us a little bit of that, and because I feel like it wraps up the sort of um, earlier mystery, in a sense, uh, in a way that parallels the earlier two texts. For sure. For sure. So just as we see a physical movement of Abraham coming to this spot, perhaps to get closer to God, and with Jesus coming to the temple in Jerusalem, and then finding himself embroiled in the trouble that leads to his crucifixion, uh, burial, and resurrection, we now see the movement of Muhammad. But once again, we need a little bit of clarification. And so this hadith comes along perhaps to fill out some of that detail, and of course, bring us closer to the geography of this sacred passage. And so we read, It is narrated on the authority of Anas bin Malik that the messenger of Allah said, I was brought al Burak, who is an animal, white and long, larger than a donkey, but smaller than a mule. I mounted it and came to Beit Makdis, house of the holy and tethered it to the ring used by the prophets. Then Jibril, Gabriel, took me to heaven. The gate of heaven was opened for us, and at the first heaven we saw Adam. He welcomed me and prayed for my good. Now at this point I just want to interject that the text goes into quite detail about the various layers of heaven that Muhammad will ascend up to God, along the way meeting many of the characters that we are familiar with from the first and second revelations of monotheism, i.e. Judaism and Christianity. Uh, For example, uh, Isa bin Maryam, Jesus the son of Miriam, as well as uh, Musa, Moses. And we'll simply skip ahead to the arrival at the seventh layer, where we read, I was taken up to the seventh heaven. The gate was opened for us, and there I found Ibrahim, Abraham, reclining against the house of Allah. Then Allah revealed to me a revelation, and he made obligatory for me fifty prayers every day and night. I went down to Musa, and he said, What has Allah enjoined upon your people? I said, Fifty prayers. He said, Return to Allah and beg for a reduction, for your community shall not be able to bear this burden, as I have put to test the children of Israel and found them too weak to bear such a heavy burden. I went back to Allah and said, Allah, make things lighter for my people. He reduced five prayers for me. I went down to Musa and said, he reduced five. 
And he said, your people shall not be able to bear this burden. Return to Allah and ask him to make things lighter. I kept going back and forth between Allah and Musa until he said, there are five prayers every day and night. O Muhammad, each being credited as ten, that makes fifty prayers. And so the resolution here is twofold. First and foremost, of course, we see a recognition of Jerusalem. Beit Maqdis, the house of the holy, as the destination of Muhammad, where we eventually, very shortly after the death of Muhammad, see the rise of the Muslim empire, and in conquering territories arrive in the land at that point called Palestine, conquering Jerusalem and recognizing that this tradition emanates from the same hill, where we see the birth of Judaism and Christianity. And so once again, we find our quote-unquote common ground as a very, very physical location for our relationship with God. But at the same time, we also see the exact development of the narrative of the revelation away from uh, the earlier revelations, simply through Muhammad developing a new narrative that he is about to take with him back to the sacred precinct, Al-Masjid al-Harami, in the Arabian Peninsula to share with his community. The Probably one of the more fascinating moments of the text, of course, and with this kind of a nice place to resolve a conversation, or at least leave it hanging, is the interaction between Muhammad and Musa and Moses in this very interesting conversation, this negotiation tactic um, which we can certainly ascribe to the Middle Eastern culture um, in defining the one of the core uh, uh, tenets of faith of Islam, and that is, of course, uh, submission through prayer. In negotiating down to five, perhaps relying on the previous experience of Moses and the children of Israel in only being able to assume a certain amount of burden in this, uh, in this relationship. So at the same time, we see the divergence of the narratives, in this particular case, Judaism and Islam. We also, almost comically, in a way that brings us together, we can sort of share uh, a familiarity with our common struggles with the covenant. Um, we see the intertwining characters uh, share that challenge of constantly recognizing how are we going to fulfill this particular covenant. So there's there's one last thing I wanted to look at uh, from, from the side of text, and then I just want to speak freely with you for the last few minutes. Um, and that is, there's a, there's a text you have of uh, the arrival of the first Muslim caliph uh, in Jerusalem, when um, I think it's the uh, second, of, second of the caliphs, Omar ibn Khattab, he uh, conquers Jerusalem not long after the death of, of the Nabi Muhammad And the story of his entrance into the city I, is, is on one of your sheets, and I'd love to read from that if you have it readily to hand. Yes. This is a letter from the Rabbinic Council at the time. This is now being written later, like much, long, much after the fact of the arrival of the, uh, of the Islamic Empire in Palestine, that was, this letter was discovered in the Cairo Geniza. And so we read quite fascinatingly the perspective of the Jewish community on the moment of the arrival, and we will glean a couple of understandings perhaps from this text, uh, and I'll 
try to keep it uh, brief by uh, abbreviating the letter. This was the doing of our God who granted us favor before the kingdom of Ishmael, which has now gained control of the Holy Land from Edom. When they came to Jerusalem, they brought with them Israelites who could show them the site of the temple and who then dwelt with them until this day. They made an agreement with them that they would honor the temple and not desecrate it and would pray at its gates, and they would not prevent this. All the Muslims in the city and surrounding area came together with a group of Jews, and they were ordered to sweep the site of the temple and to clean it. Omar was in charge of their work. Whenever they uncovered another layer, he would ask the elders of the Jews if this was the stone known as the foundation stone. One of the sages explained the various sections of the place until it was uncovered. Then he ordered that the wall of the sanctuary be built and a dome erected over the stone and overlaid with gold. So we see here the interaction, again, from a Jewish perspective, important to remember, of the arrival of the Muslim Empire in Jerusalem, clearly admitting, if not even embracing, that Islam had a very deep connection to that particular hill, and that they were searching for it, and that they indeed found it. Uh, and in doing so, were able to build their physical monument, just as the Jews had constructed the temple over the spot of the binding of Isaac, and either Constantine or Helena had constructed the church over the tomb of Christ. What's fascinating here, of course, is that at the same time as we are able to continue linking our textual narratives to this physical geography, we're also witnessing how earlier revelations and later revelations, while clearly uh, in perhaps theological conflict over who got it right, whether a earlier revelation or a later revelation is more relevant at that particular time, we have here relationships developing. And in fact, the text just continues, just to add in uh, one more sentence, we read at the end of this letter that 70 Jewish households, including women and children, moved from Tiberias and established settlements in buildings whose foundations had stood many generations in Jerusalem. As an invitation by the Muslims who have now come to take over the land, to build their monuments, to connect to their narratives, there is an invitation for the Jews to re-establish their communities as well in Jerusalem. Because there were, um, I think under the uh, Byzantines, before this conquest, Jews were expelled from Jerusalem? Have I, is that your understanding? There are different interpretations of how the movement happened, but it is, I think, fairly safe to say the Jews were not very welcome in Jerusalem. There were moments of official decrees where Jews were not allowed to at least dwell in Jerusalem. Um, and certainly there were many moments where Jews were not allowed to openly practice their faith in this land. And so here perhaps we see a turning moment, maybe quite an unexpected one, uh, given the way that we often perceive the relationship between Judaism and Islam in the very modern uh, political context of the 21st century. Um, and so here we, we see that uh, the return of the Jewish community to reestablish that that connection, at the same time, of course, that they are, in fact, being challenged by a greater political expression of faith in the form of the Muslim Empire. And, of course, to get into more detail, uh, we would have to then explore whether or not the Jews could completely express 
their faith connections to the city. We know, for example, that uh, Jewish uh, houses of worship were not allowed to be built uh, to, a, to a certain height so that they would not uh, dominate over the landscape of, uh, of the Muslim empire. Um, and there were definitely uh, special taxes that had to be paid as a subject minority within the empire. But nonetheless, it is, uh, I think, very enlightening to read such a Jewish text uh, almost embracing this relationship that allows them to return to this sacred place. It, it certainly seems like a much more positive um, attitude than has since developed over the intervening few, uh, like 1,400 years or so. For sure, although we could also look at this letter, uh, and this really brings us to the, to the bigger question, we can look at this letter and sort of see how it essentially is, in a way, potentially setting us up for failure, right? The more we acknowledge each other's physical roots in this land to our individual faiths. The positive spin, of course, is quite obvious. We all share many of the same stories and perhaps even share the same exact God, or at least very parallel covenants. But once again, we could be setting ourselves up for a conflict through that actual sharing. Because at the end of the day, we all have a deep desire to control a certain amount mm. of those faith relationships. And so, as we read in the letter, if the Jews are going to be invited back to Jerusalem, then wouldn't their natural impulses be to recreate some of the glory of the past by ascending onto Mount Moriah, to rebuilding the temple, to reestablishing sacrifice? And if so, is it even possible for that to be done in harmony with the reality that they're witnessing, which is, of course, the the physical construction of monuments to Islam. Is it possible for the two to share that space? Would one have to be eliminated for the other to thrive? And that is a question that, of course, we have been plagued with since these moments, early moments, of uh, monotheistic revelation and until this very day. So in light, of, in light of all these texts that we've gone through today, what is your vision of a better Jerusalem? My vision is, first and foremost, as I mentioned in the opening, to simply open our eyes and recognize that each of us have beautiful, stunning, uh, and quite um, romantic, I would even call it, uh, relationships with Jerusalem through the birth moments of our faith traditions, and that we should be embracing them, while at the same time recognizing that each of those traditions struggles with a lack of detail in understanding exactly how those moments happened. Now, granted, many, many people of faith are not that intrigued by detail, but I would, I certainly as a teacher would encourage people to explore them because they tend to perhaps open up unexpected windows into our own faith identities and allow us to question our own traditions and our own narratives um, in seeking out further information. And as we see those parallel Stories emerge, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, side by side as monotheistic traditions and side by side in the geography of this land, we are then forced to recognize that there are limits to how much we are able to express ourselves and at the same time perhaps allow for others to express our, themselves in the way that we would want the freedom. And so we find ourselves... I often use the, uh, the sort of the metaphor of standing on a seesaw in a child's play playground, 
on one hand, we, it's very easy to lean to one side where we're far more stable, and that side could be the truth of our narrative, the comfort that we feel in simply blocking out all other things and recognizing this is the home of my Lord, of my maker, of my tradition. On the other hand, we could easily slip to the other side of the seesaw and rest comfortably there, and that could be the quite present element of doubt in so many of our traditions. We aren't really sure how these things happened, and as we see in the modern world around us, there are so many people who really struggle with any element of faith in their lives. And so it's quite simple and comfortable just to rule it all out and say, well, we don't know if it happened or not, so why do I even bother? Mm. And so my ultimate goal is to try to get as many people as possible into that least comfortable space of trying to balance the seesaw without either end touching the ground. And that essentially is embracing our faith identities and at the same time embracing those deep and troubling questions um, which hopefully will compel us forward in learning more and in recognizing the multiplicity of voices that we hear, especially in the sacred city of Jerusalem. And for those who are playing along at home and want to try uh, standing right in the middle of that proverbial seesaw, do you have any tips, any starting points? Uh, well, first and foremost, don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> um, I mean, with the sanctity of our traditions, and I certainly do not want to diminish that, um, as a deeply religious person myself, there is, I think, a certain holiness to, to humor, uh, to cynicism, um, and to, and certainly within my own personal tradition, uh, the sacred tradition of questioning our texts, our teachings, and the narratives that have been passed down to us. So it kind of helps alleviate perhaps the, uh, the serious moment of that balancing act if you can really enjoy it as you hopefully would being in a child's playground. Jared Goldfarb, <laughs> it's been a pleasure to have you out here this morning. My pleasure, thank you. Thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.